and we'll be considering the whole chapter of Genesis 17, and so I'll read all 27 verses. Once again, listen now to the reading of God's holy word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation." But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall uh, bear to you at this time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were uh, bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, 
Abraham's house and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael. And all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we rejoice and give thanks to You that You have given to us Your Word and You revealed Yourself to us through Your Word that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life that we don't have to search around in the dark to know who You are, who we are, and what You have called us to do. That You have revealed it in Your Word. And as we come to this particular passage this morning, we do pray, Father, that Your blessing would be upon Your Word and that Your Spirit would truly go forth with Your Word and that it might find within our hearts that rich, fertile soil that would bring about great and abundant fruit for Your glory. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Since the beginning, since God created all things, He has desired a relationship especially with the creature that He created after His own image. And of course, because God is the infinite Creator and mankind is the dust of the earth creation, God had to condescend or humble Himself in order to graciously enter into this relationship with mankind. We call this relationship a covenant. A covenant is basically an agreement... um, between two parties, and it is typically includes the responsibilities, it lays out the responsibilities of each party, it lays out the promises for keeping the covenant, as well as the warnings against breaking the covenant. Well, the covenants that we find in Scripture often also include a sign, a sign that confirms the relationship that has been established. Now, back in Genesis 15... God had entered into His covenant with Abram, and now in Genesis 17, the Lord's not only reaffirming that covenant, but is expanding its promises and is granting the covenant sign. And so this isn't a new covenant that God is making with Abraham. It's God affirming that He is calling out Abraham and his descendants to be His own special people and is setting them apart by instructing Abram to apply a special sign and seal of that covenant to all those who are in his household. Now, in the Lord's good blessing, we do have the privilege today to bear witness to the fulfillment of this covenant in Christ Jesus. And in a very similar way to Genesis 17, to see the sign and seal of God's new covenant in Christ applied to the newest member of God's called out covenant community, the church. And so this morning, as we consider God's covenant with Abram and the sign of of circumcision, we'll note its significance as a precursor to God's covenant with us through Jesus Christ. 
and the covenant sign of baptism, which were commanded to bear in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. First, a bit of background. Again, Genesis 15. Actually, I guess you could go back to Genesis 12, where God first called out Abraham from the land of Ur. Uh, but in Genesis 15, we find where God has uh, actually uh, expressed to Abram that covenant. And of course, in that passage, Abram expresses concern to the Lord because God is making these promises to him, but so far, uh, his wife Sarai is barren. She hasn't been able to have children. And so far, his only heir is going to be the son of his servant. But the Lord reassures Abram that a son and heir would come from his own body. Well, then in chapter 16, Abram and his wife Sarai, well, it seems as though they lost patience with God's promise. And they took matters into their own hands and trying to bring the promise about through Sarai's servant Hagar and the son which she bore to Abram, Ishmael. But Ishmael wasn't the son God had promised Abram. It's now been, since that time, about 13 years since that vain attempt to do God's work for him. And, and in those years, there's been no record of God speaking to Abram. And so it's been 13 years of silence. And so at this time, as we come to chapter 17, Abram is 99, Sarai is 90. And the possibility that the promised seed would come from the two of them has really gotten further and further out of reach. In fact, from a human perspective, it's completely impossible. But God breaks the silence and He speaks once again. That the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. I want you to note here how the Lord ascribes to himself at a time when, when Abram and Sarai would maybe be struggling with doubts that this is an impossible situation, but God indicates that though it's impossible with men, with God, all things are possible. He calls Himself, I am God Almighty, or I am El Shaddai. He alone is the Almighty, all-powerful God. He's the one who has created all things. Certainly, He has power to bring life even out of death. And it's this God Almighty who has graciously made this covenant with Abram. Because the covenant is made by Almighty God. Again, the blessing that God had promised, the blessing of having a son, the blessing that seemed impossible because Abram was old and his wife was barren. It's all in the hands of the Almighty God. And so not only is it possible, but God assures here that it will certainly happen. And then verse 4-6, to as God reminds Abram of the blessings we see some uh, the blessings of the covenant. We see some new features added to these promises. And the first new feature is that Abram receives a new name. He's no longer Abram, but he is now Abraham. Now really there's no essential difference between the names Abram and Abraham other than the spelling. Abram means exalted father. And Abraham seems to strengthen that with the father of many. But why... 
Why a new name? Well, in Scripture, oftentimes we find a name change often denotes a change in status, a role, or even a change in character or destiny. Again, we remember that God had already established His covenant with Abram, but now, on the cusp of the covenant promise being fulfilled, God changes Abram to Abraham as a way to say, look, things are going to be different now. Abram, you are now a, you have a new identity. This is a new beginning. In a sense, he's become a new creature. And so the parallel here to the new covenant in Jesus Christ is clear. We know that when we enter into that covenant by faith in Christ Jesus, we become, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, a new creation. That all things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Abram, now Abraham... All those old things have been put away. He is now something new as God prepares to pour out upon him the fullness of his covenant blessings. Well, secondly, God expands the promise to Abraham that he'll become a great nation in verse 4. He says, you shall be a father of many nations. And then in verse 6, he says, kings shall come from you. So Abraham is not, going just to, is not going to be just the father of one nation, but a multitude of nations. And not just ordinary citizens or servants will come from him, but kings and princes. Well, how will these things be? Abraham will not only be the father of Israel and Judah and her kings and their kings, but he will also be the father of the nations that are descended from Ishmael, as we see in verse 20. And their kings, and later, through his grandson Esau, would come the peoples of Edom and and Amalek, and their kings. And so we see that it's not just Israel coming from Abraham, but these other nations also will come from Abraham, and they will have their own kings as well. But when we consider this promise in light of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, we see its fulfillment in two key ways. Abraham is the father of all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just of the Jews, but the people of all nations who profess the name of Christ. And this is what the Apostle Paul brings out in Galatians 3, verse 28 and 29. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so truly, Abraham becomes then, through Jesus Christ, the father of a multitude of nations, even more than just those that came from his flesh. And secondly, in the New Covenant, we know that a king has come. And that king has come from Abraham. The Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and He reigns even now over all the nations of the earth. And so these promises to Abraham have been fulfilled ultimately in Christ. But there's more. Look at verse 7 and 8. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be gone to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan. 
as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Well, here the Lord elaborates on another covenant promise. The land of Canaan will be the possession of Abraham and his descendants, and we know that eventually that uh, comes to fruition under uh, Joshua when they go in and, and conquer the land of Canaan. But note here that this feature has everlasting implications. But we have to be careful here when we consider the term everlasting. Because in Scripture, it refers to what is spiritual and not that which is temporal. And so it's a misunderstanding of this concept that has led to many of the problems we have in the Middle East today involving Israel and this piece of real estate in the Middle East. And all the battles and the wars and the debates and discussions about who owns the land. Well, Scripture is clear that Israel would possess the land. But there was a condition. As long as she was faithful to God. But we know that Israel violated God's covenant and fell into idolatry and gross immorality. And so they even got so bad to the point where God removed the Jews from the land for a time to punish them. But then later he returned a faithful remnant. And of course we know that from that faithful remnant, the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ came. But then the Jews rejected him. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected their Savior. And they put him to death. Thus losing their claim to the covenant promises. Well now, the new and the better covenant which Christ ushered in is in effect. And it has nothing to do with the earthly real estate. Yet the promise to Abraham here is fully realized when we see its fulfillment in the heavenly real estate that Christ is even now preparing for us. See, Abraham himself knew that the earthly real estate was just a picture and a foretaste of the heavenly home that would truly belong to he and his descendants forever and without end. And and uh, Hebrews 11, verse 10 and 16, bring this out. That Abraham was not looking for an earthly city. He was looking heavenly, or heavenward for the fulfillment of that promise. And so the promise of the temporal real estate is fulfilled in the eternal inheritance that awaits faithful believers at the end of the age. Well, having a promise of land and a great nation isn't going to mean anything without a son. And so God also clarifies and expands on this part of the promise in verses 15 through verse 21. And here we see several things. First, Sarai, she also receives a new name, Sarah, meaning princess. And so by the power of the Lord God Almighty, this barren princess will have a son, and his name is going to be Isaac. A name God assigns because in verse 17, Abraham laughed at the notion of having a son in his old age. But God reaffirms that it's Sarah's son who will be the son of promise. And so that even she too will be greatly blessed as a mother of nations and that kings of peoples shall come from her as well. Secondly, in verse 18, Abraham pleads with God to let Ishmael be the one Let Ishmael be the one who who stands before you. 
You see, God's plan and purpose have already been set. And God doesn't follow our plans. He doesn't follow the plans of our own devising. And certainly Ishmael was a product of of man's devising. God has His own wonderful and perfect plan. And His plan here, His plan from the beginning, has been to do the impossible. To bring life out of the deadness of Sarah's womb. And again, we see that, and Paul talks about that in Romans 4, verse 19. Thirdly, in verse 20, God does promise to bless Ishmael for, uh, for Abraham's sake, and because, again, he is the son of Abraham. Ishmael will be blessed. But the continuation of the covenant, the covenant blessings, don't belong to Ishmael. And again, Paul refers to this passage in Romans 9, uh, verses 6 through 8, to argue that it's not nationality or physical heritage that guarantees one's participation in the covenant of God. Because obviously Ishmael was of the flesh of Abraham. But Paul reveals to us that it's faith in the promises of God that secures our place. And so Paul says, For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. And so it's the spiritual children of Abraham, those who believe in the promises of God, that is, those who believe in Jesus Christ. These are the true heirs to the covenant promises that God had made with Abraham. So we've made these connections to how these promises are ultimately fulfilled in the new covenant through Jesus Christ. And we know uh, Abraham looked forward to this in faith. The chief scope of the promises for Abraham were outward physical realities. Right? The new names, the nations and kings, the land, and of course, the promised son, Isaac. But there was one key internal spiritual promise that was also made to Abraham that he himself and his descendants could experience in the here and now. And that is this, they were called out to be a special people of God. The central essence of God's covenant with Abraham, which becomes uh, reiterated with later covenants with Israel at Mount Sinai and then again with David, and yes, even in the new covenant, is this. I will be your God and you shall be my people. The design and purpose of God's covenant is to glorify Himself by bringing sinful and undeserving human human beings into fellowship with Him. This is true union and communion with the Almighty Lord God, Creator of heaven and earth. God desires a people to call His own. A people upon whom He can bestow His abundant grace and blessings. A people, as Peter refers to in 1 Peter 2.9, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. And it's interesting there because uh, Peter is quoting 
from a passage in Deuteronomy which uh, is used to speak of Israel, but here Peter is speaking about the church and applying that to the church. And so again, in Scripture, the emphasis isn't placed on the ethnicity, ethnicity, the nationality, or the physical genealogy, but the true spiritual lineage. For even during the time when the ethnicity and nationality were synonymous with God's called out people, during the days of ancient Israel, we know that they were not all Israel who were of Israel. And again, we've already seen this with Ishmael, and then later it will become a, it will be re- revealed again, as Paul points out in Romans 9, in related to Esau, the son of Isaac. And so the spiritual nature of God's covenant with Abraham, the reconciled God-man relationship, which is truly everlasting and without end, it transforms the physical features of the covenant the nation, the land, the promised king and son into promises that are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ for the benefit of those who believe and who trust in His name for salvation. And so this is true for not only the covenant promises, but also the covenant sign and seal. So God is the one who graciously established this covenant with Abraham. God is the one who set the terms. God made the promises and God will see it through to fulfillment according to His own plan in His own perfect timing. But this doesn't mean that Abraham is to do nothing. You see, there's a covenant obligation that the Lord uh, puts uh, before him here. And we see it in verse 1. And it comes in the form of the, the double command to walk before me and be blameless. And so God required faith in His promises and complete and total loyalty. But Abraham, like us, we know, is a sinner. And as sinners, they're una- we're unable to do any good thing in God's sight within ourselves, in our own sin nature. So how then can Abraham walk before God and be blameless? Indeed, how can we as the church be a true holy nation when we're sinful? The answer, of course, is the fact that even our faith and belief in God is a gift of His abundant, amazing grace. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that faith is the gift of God. So even our covenant obligation, right? The the duty which God requires of us to believe on His promises, to believe in Jesus Christ, even that obligation is a gift of grace bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not something that one who is dead in sins and transgressions can do. But not only is Abraham obligated to believe and trust God totally, God also gives him instructions about circumcision, which will be the sign and the seal of God's covenant. Verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you. Let's quickly note these about the covenant sign that God gives here. Circumcision is a a cutting away of the foreskin, a, a piece of flesh from the male reproductive organ. And circumcision wasn't new with the Jews, 
But God instituted circumcision as a way to separate his people from others. Not by reason of the physical action, but again by the spiritual significance that God himself attached to it. A covenant sign is a physical witness to a spiritual reality. And there are at least two reasons why circumcision is spiritually symbolic. is because it's a picture of the mortification of flesh and turning away from sin. See, circumcision was a, a bloody and painful procedure. And it reminded the people that they're undeserving sinners who must repent and turn away from their sins. And that blood was required because of sin. And that they must turn toward God alone for salvation. And so in this sense, circumcision is likened to a sign of repentance. Secondly, since circumcision is performed on the male reproductive organ, it emphasizes the promise of the seed that is the promised son, which leads ultimately to salvation, as Paul mentions in Romans 4 verse 11. In this way, circumcision is associated with faith in God's promise. Well, it's also significant to note who was to receive this sign. Not just Abraham, not just the promised son Isaac, but all the males who were in Abraham's household. All those who were eight days old and up, whether they were a slave or whether they were free, whether they were born in the household or whether they were bought, whether they were a blood relative or whether they were a foreigner, they all were to receive the sign and seal. Now this is significant for many reasons. First, it's identifying the covenant community. Even though only the males received the sign of circumcision, Abraham's entire household is being included in the covenant, whether they themselves believed in God and His promises or not. All were beneficiaries to the covenant blessings. And so again, race, ethnicity, and freedom weren't grounds for discrimination. Even though God clearly explains that it is through Isaac that the covenant promise will come about, Ishmael and all the servants still receive the sign. Why? For the simple reason that they are members of Abraham's household. Circumcision didn't guarantee the fullness of the promised inheritance, which was, again, ultimately salvation, and the internal inheritance in God's glorious presence. But it did set Abraham and his descendants apart to be God's own people. Yet there was an obligation to fulfill. And that only those who responded in faith would in a very true spiritual sense be God's covenant people. And so the entire household is still included and they still receive the sign in an outward way even though it's possible that some may not ever believe and may not ever enjoy the full covenant benefits that God has in store. It should also be noted that all from Abraham, who was 99 years old, and we assume he was probably the the oldest, to the eight-day-old infant, all those born in his household were included. Again, God makes no basis for discrimination. It was Abraham's entire household 
And again, this is significant because it reaffirms that when God makes a covenant, whenever we see a God making a covenant throughout Scripture, it's never made with one person in mind, with one individual. It always has in view you and your descendants after you. Again, this doesn't become an automatic or guaranteed way of salvation. But it shows that God is often pleased to work in and through families from one generation to the next. Also, it was a great privilege for that eight-day-old infant to receive the sign of the covenant and be circumcised, thus becoming a partaker of all the outward blessings and benefits that stem from living in the covenant community. However, the obligation to believe in God's covenant promises remained in order for the fullest benefit of the covenant, salvation, in order for that to be fully realized. But there was also a curse associated with the covenant sign. In verse 14, the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so if someone in Abraham's household wasn't circumcised, well, he'd be considered a covenant breaker. And, and really, the, in a very um, direct way, the, the, the charge is to cut off or be cut off. And to be cut off is to be thrust from the covenant community to be separated from its benefits, its blessings and privileges, and ultimately separated from the only way to (coughs) salvation. The individual that was a covenant breaker would be considered outside the family. They'd be considered an unbeliever, and ultimately they would be seen as dead. Moses, who's writing this account knew full well the impact and the severity of this command. In Exodus chapter 4, the Lord actually is seeking to kill Moses because he had not circumcised his own sons. And then Moses' wife, Zipporah, intervened and circumcised the boys, and thus she spared not only Moses' life, but also the lives of her sons. And so the implications are severe, for the one who refuses to apply the covenant sign and seal to the members of his household as God has commanded. Those who don't bear the covenant sign and seal are to be considered covenant breakers and have no stake or claim in the benefits and the privileges of the covenant community. While diligent about his faith and seeking to avoid this curse, Abraham immediately, on that very same day, circumcised his entire household, thus establishing it as God's called out covenant people. Well, of course, we know that with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the flow of covenant history came to a head, and and that which was old was fulfilled and replaced by the new. And there were many changes that took place. Right? The imperfect ceremonies and symbols of the Old Covenant, for example, the animal, animal sacrifices, the dietary laws, the instruments and in, incense they used in worship, these were done away with and cast aside because Christ had fulfilled their purpose by His once for all atoning sacrifice on the cross. And in Acts 15, 
we even see the casting aside of circumcision. When the church declared that the Gentiles who came to believe in Christ don't need to be circumcised when they come to believe in Christ. In other words, they don't need to become Jews before they become Christians. And as Paul would later say in Romans 2, that the more essential matter is that he is a Jew who, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. <coughs> and so the spiritual significance has once again superseded the physical act. But it's important to note that though there were changes... God's covenant, which was a covenant of grace, that that covenant continues and remains in effect. And so the covenant promises that God made to Abraham are still in effect, not for a people of a particular race, ethnic group, or or physical heritage, and certainly not for a, a secular Israeli state, but for the true Israel of God, those who are Abraham's descendants by faith, God's new covenant people, the church. Again, Paul speaks of this in Romans 9 and in Galatians as well. Because God's covenant is still in effect. Well, the sign and seal of the covenant is still required. But circumcision, the painful, bloody cutting away of flesh, has now been set aside. And so we look to the sign and seal of God's new covenant, which is baptism. And Paul makes this connection in Colossians 2, verse 11, where he says this, In in Him you uh, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses. So here we see that baptism symbolizes the same thing that circumcision represented. It's the putting off of sin through repentance and the turning toward God by faith in His promises. And it signifies our union and communion in Christ through His death. Baptism is the sign and seal upon the believer that they're beneficiaries to the blessings and the promises of God's covenant of grace. But there's one final important piece that we need to add. The command to circumcise was given to Abraham and his entire household, young and old, whether they had professed faith in the promises of God or not. They all received the sign of the covenant and were all considered to be partakers of God's covenant, beneficiaries to all those outward blessings and promises. It's for this reason that we also apply the covenant sign and seal of baptism, not only to those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, but to their children as well. In Acts chapter 2, as... uh, Peter has finished up his, his sermon on the day of Pentecost. And the people are responding, what must we do? And Peter responds this way in Acts 2.38. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. 
And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Peter was here referring to the covenant promises that God had made. And the Jewish people who were there, who heard Him, they would have clearly understood this as covenant language. And certainly if they believed in Jesus Christ and entered into this new covenant with Him and received the new covenant sign of baptism, well then they understood because it's covenant language, they clearly understood that just as with circumcision, their children should also receive the sign as they become heirs to God's covenant blessings through faith in Jesus Christ. That the children too should be baptized. But let's not forget, brothers and sisters, the sign of baptism, the water used in baptism, doesn't save. And it doesn't guarantee salvation. It doesn't literally wash away the sins. Because it's the grace of God alone which saves through the work of the Holy Spirit. But receiving the covenant sign, even as an infant, does set in place the covenant obligation. That if you've been baptized, even as an infant, as an infant or even as an adult, that one day you must repent of your sin and you must believe on Jesus Christ alone if you want to attain the eternal inheritance that Christ has secured for you. And so, brothers and sisters, by the grace of God, may these covenant promises of God be fulfilled in Jesus Christ for each of you, from the oldest to the youngest, even for little ember, and that it would all be to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Oh gracious God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for your word and we thank you for its truth and we just pray that you would give us understanding here as we consider these things and as your spirit continues to apply these in our hearts. And we rejoice and give thanks that you have called us to be your people. And that you have given us this sign to mark us and to set us apart from the world. And that to us belong the covenant promises. But Lord, we do know that one day we must, and our children, though they receive the covenant sign and seal, they must still one day call upon your name and faith and claim those covenant promises as their own. And Lord, we pray for each of our children that this would indeed be the case. (coughs) That even now you would be working in their hearts from the youngest to the oldest. Drawing them all closer to yourself. Even as you would draw us to yourself. So we pray for these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.